So, I'm going to name of my sermon is After the Apologies, Then What? The Interplay of Apology, Forgiveness, and Reconciliation. Not even beginning to go into restorative justice or restitution. My mother said to me at times when I was growing up, noblesse oblige. Sometimes it's a hortatory remark, sometimes it's just for fact, a truth. While I knew, and she knew, that we do not come from nobility, I know what she meant was to those who were given much, much is expected. I look at this as her tip of her hat to the idea of white privilege many years before it was named. What I know is I'm white. I was born and live arguably in the best country ever. I live in the best time ever. Running water, air conditioning, cars, devices that make bills, pay bills, on which you can talk, play games, see virtually anything, anywhere, anytime, have the essence of a library in your hand. I am privileged. I've had, if not unlimited, resources, abundant resources, numerous opportunities, and wide safety nets. I've had access to schools, to tools, and affirming rules. I've been fairly prosperous. I've not suffered food insecurity. I don't live in a food desert. I've never been homeless. So I have been relatively pampered. I also realized without any doubt that I didn't wake up on third base and think I'd hit a triple. I understand I was able to start here on third base. So I am privileged, fairly prosperous, and pampered, and aware that that is not everybody's good fortune. So what am I to do with privilege? I do not want to be indifferent, to be afflicted with an inordinate degree of white fragility or defensiveness. Because when you know something, denial doesn't work. The questions of to whom, to what do I owe, what's my responsibility, who deserves an apology, what is appropriate, what is adequate, who do I forgive, how am I forgiven, Essentially, how do I use my privilege in some sort of purposeful way? Unitarian Universalists will say, sometimes glibly, the art bends toward justice. Some of us have witnessed this. Some of us doubt that it will ever happen. But we are summoned to work together on social justice like our lives depend on it. Some theologies would say that suffering happens to individuals we also realize that oppression and suffering is collective and centuries old, and that if we heal, it will be collectively. So what I'm attempting to do today is to look at some of these questions in the context of apologies, atonement, amends, forgiveness, reconciliation. It's the inner we, and understanding that relationships like history are neither simple nor linear. It's not just cause and effect. So looking at the healing of rifts in relationships that are current as well as are old and entrenched. I also realize that when we try to make things right, to pay things back, or to pay things forward, we're doing it in actions. It's not a simple bill. It's not something like your sweat coat bill that at the end of the month they assess how much they're going to charge you for electricity and you pay it. Were that it that simple? Every community is, of course, broken. 
and every individual in some way wounded. And so this process of healing, atoning, forgiving, apologizing, making amends is ongoing. We can never make ourselves completely whole. So the work of healing never ends, but it is the most important work we do. It doesn't mean as we do things that it's necessarily going to heal old wounds, but I think we have to start somewhere. To so many issues, inequality, slavery, voting rights, LGBTQT, uh, immigrant, we are instructed to bear witness, to notice the conflict between the victim or the minority and the perpetrator or the majority. It's very tempting to take the side of the perpetrator because the perpetrator asked the bystander or the witness to merely do nothing. This appeals to the universal desire to see, hear, speak no evil. It is the seduction of choosing comfort over convictions. The victim, the offended, asked the bystander instead to share the burden of pain. The victim demands action, engagement, remembering to get and stay involved. Each of us here is part of a community, part of a religious community. Each one of us here on personal, interpersonal, interpersonal, and collective level is imperfect. We're all flawed because of our human nature. So that at any given time, we would be the offender and the offended, the forgiver and the one needing to be forgiven, the apologizer and the apology. And the, the understanding to this is also that none of this work will necessarily lead to reconciliation or restoration, but these are necessary but not necessarily sufficient steps for reconciliation. Obviously, no small task than to do this work, to allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to transform ourselves and thus transform the world by seeking out the spark of the divine in each other, to face both our courage and cowardice when we have faced injustice and suffering both present and past. So we're gonna talk a little bit about these different um, concepts that apology, atonement, amends. Atonement means to be at one. It involves the idea of making amends, apologies, seeking to live a more reconciled life with ourselves and with others. To be in right relationship with yourself and with other people. The theme of atonement, seeking and giving forgiveness of heartfelt apologies, strikes a universal chord. It is found in Jewish tradition, in Islam, Christianity. In fact, all of the wisdom traditions speak to this. The seeking of healing, particularly of a rift in relationship, to reconnect finds universal expression. We long for connection. Atonement involves repenting of my wrongs, seeking forgiveness, and making amends if at all possible. When a relationship matters, the failure to say, I'm sorry, can erode connection. Atonement, making amends, offering a true apology, requires vulnerability. So let me just say a, a couple of ways that people, and all of us, I'm sure, have tried to slither out of an apology. And one of those ways can be with the word but. And so we, you know, saying, uh, 
I'm sorry, but then going on to explain why you had to do whatever it is you had to do. Or saying if. If I said something that you found insensitive, I'm sorry you took it that way. Essentially blaming the other person's response, saying something like, I'm sorry you overreacted to my perfectly reasonable comment. <laughs> and an apology is not a get out of free jail card, not a get out of jail free card. It's not a bargaining chip for forgiveness. An apology is rather my accepting responsibility for something, expressing commensurate remorse, offering restitution if possible, and a promise not to do that particular thing again. We've all felt the need to be apologized to, and we've all felt the need to apologize. If I'm the harmed party, I can't demand an apology, primarily because no one wants to be told how to think, feel, or behave, and that includes being told they need to make an apology. The sincerity test of any apology is the follow-up. If I do what I say I'm going to do, or conversely don't do what I say I'm not going to do, and I do this over time, then the apology was sincere. In my office, any number of times, maybe not on a daily basis, but countless times, I've heard something like, he or she never apologizes, or why don't they apologize, or that there's not a sorry that can handle that particular action. Accepting an apology doesn't mean reconciliation. What it does create are more possibilities for future talk or repair of that relationship. Relationships can often have a chronic underreactor and chronic overreactor. So it falls to each of us to try to reach for our better self and not wait for the other person to change. Because I can tell you, the foolproof recipe for relationship failure is waiting for the other person to change first. Making these changes to have right relationships in the present, forgiveness, healing, apologies, is ongoing. My work, my part of right relationships, is to apologize when it's due, to focus on my part of the present transaction, and to notice my part of any historical misconduct. Uh, I can't wait for the other person to notice. Um, I can own whatever percent of the problem I think is mine. So if I'm apologizing, I'm, I don't have to say that it was 100% my fault, but to, to look for the part that was mine and to do, to apologize for that. A true apology doesn't ask the other person to do anything, not even forgive. As has been pointed out by numerous writers or theologians, forgiveness isn't cheap. Reconciliation is not always to be had. Forgiveness is complex. Forgiveness is not a particular action. Rather, it's a state of mind. A former inmate of a Nazi concentration camp was visiting a friend who had shared the ordeal with him. Have you forgiven the Nazis? He asked his friend. Yes. Well, I haven't. I'm still consumed with hatred for them. In that case, said his friend, said his friend gently, they still have you in prison. The big book of AA talks about resentments being the number one offender. That resentments mean feeling again or feeling badly and clinging to anger, fear, 
sadness that congeal together. Resentment reinforces the vision of myself as a victim. And when I'm feeling wronged and carry this, it blinds me, it traps me. And as long as I resent someone or something, I'm trapped as a victim. I'm still in prison. Forgiveness can be one of the paths toward release from resentment. Forgiveness becomes possible when we replace the word will by willingness and replace effort by openness. So it is about being willing and willing. In AA, we are encouraged to pray for our enemy, not to change him or her, but to change myself. One of the truths about forgiving and forgiveness is often we find that when we have been forgiven, we are allowed to forgive someone else. Forgiveness is in essence a spiritual practice. And as with many spiritual things, forgiveness cannot be commanded, demanded, or required. Many practices for forgiveness involve something like a prayer, which is like a petition. It's an inner mindfulness. It's a way of thinking about things in a different way. Going back to the AA program, the ninth step of the 12 steps is to make direct amends to such people whenever possible, except for to do so with injured him or others. Making amends is acknowledging the exact nature of my wrong. So it may not happen that anybody <clears throat> that I make amends to, I can't depend that they will forgive me, but this is a step when they might be able to. And it's a way I, I have of being able to deal with my guilt. To forgive involves letting go of the feelings of resentment and the vision that underlies that feeling. That is the vision of me being a victim. Carrying around the burden of past resentments or guilt is exhausting and erodes the quality of my life in the present. And this is an important part here in this, no matter what has happened to me, I need to acknowledge and own my responsibility for the choices I make now. Forgiveness is not an explanation. Um, explanations have to be more with exploring causes. Um, oftentimes in the effort to control it, or the idea is if I can just understand this, then I can change the past. I can have a different ending to that story. Forgiveness has to do with letting go of the past, giving up on the attempt to control it, and refusing to be controlled by it. But it is not the same thing as forgetting. Letting go of the past is not erasing it. Forgiveness is not an attempt to wipe the slate clean. Forgiveness does not remove responsibility for our actions. Every human being is responsible for his or her choices. Until we are ready to accept our responsibility, and stop blaming someone else for our problems. Change and healing will not occur. This does not mean that people who have been victimized are to blame for their hurt and their pain. What is true for any of us who have been victimized, as we all have at some point, is that we are responsible for what we do now. The questions of how do you forgive, do you just do it, why would you forgive? 
because it's the right thing to do, because society tells you it's the right thing to do. It's, under, it's understanding that it's not a shortcut to healing. The coming to forgive is designed to set you free by saying to the offender, I know what you did, it's not okay, and I can heal myself. Vengeance isn't freedom. In uh, Jewish tradition, what they say is you can't forgive something that didn't happen to you. So that, you know, I guess by, uh, in that context, then, you know, if, since I wasn't murdered, I can't forgive the person for murdering me. But what I can forgive is the anguish, the loss, the love loss. So we can forgive what our damage has been. Forgiveness allows us to not be a slave of loss, but a participant in letting go. It's recognizing that sooner or later, the world will break your heart. So what do we have to do? First, we have to look at the wound. We have to assess the damages so that we can at some point cauterize the wound. And we cannot wait for the person to apologize. We can't wait to give what we're owed. It's up for it to each of us to choose our life over waiting or needing to be acknowledged. Forgiveness involves letting go of expectations. We're not defined by what has happened to us. We are more than our history. We're not defined by the wound or the offense perpetrated. Forgiveness in that way equals empowerment because I'm no longer a victim. All of this has to do with letting go of the belief that I can change what happened, letting go of the past, or letting the past pass so that the door to the present can be open. The proper question may not be, can everyone be forgiven, but more, can I forgive? Can, can everyone forgive? The shooting in Charleston a few years ago provides a vivid picture of the complexity of forgiveness, its messiness, poignancy. It happened in Charleston, in Charleston at the Mother Emanuel AME Church. You probably remember it because it was a man-made catastrophe, more sorrowful, more sorrowful and powerful than most. As you recall, a young white man by the name of Dylan Root shot and killed nine members of the church at a prayer meeting. An avowed white supremacist, he intended to provoke a race war. But instead of a war, Charleston and the church erupted in grace. Soon after, the Confederate qualifier was removed from the state capitol grounds with relatively little controversy. The shooting involves or includes all sorts of stories, true, tragic, traumatic, and momentous. It was a story freighted with shock, but it didn't have a, a Hollywood ending, movie ending, even with President Obama breaking into amazing grace. Because the dead are still dead and the sleepless nights drag on. Loss is an aching wound. The murders of the man will have to be fitted into the uh, entangled history of race relations, racial violence, and oppression. It brings up white supremacy, white, supremacy, white fragility, 
so many questions. The questions of can murder be forgiven, and if so, who has the power or the right to do this? Does forgiveness have to be honored, or is it given freely? It brings up the juxtaposition of forgiveness and justice, because even as many survivors of them offered the magnanimous words and offered forgiveness, the feelings of outrage and demands for justice were every bit as real and long-lasting. During the arraignment, a closed-circuit image of Ruth was visible. The wife of one of the men killed was asked by the judge to speak. She said later, she, the thoughts going on in her mind were, you have to forgive people and move on. When you keep that hatred, it hurts only you. So when she spoke to Dylan that day in court, soon after the shooting, she said, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never get to talk to him again. I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. If God forgives you, I forgive you. She spoke these words spontaneously, but she didn't speak for everyone. Because the question of forgiveness is as old as humans. It's a riddle. And I'm sure that anybody in here today, if I asked you to say what you thought forgiveness was, you'd have a different idea. And I can tell you if you Google it, you will find a seven-step program, a nine-step program, a ten-step program, amongst other programs. Whether forgiveness speaks to the condition of the offender or those who've been offended, how much forgiveness is enough? Is it, as Jesus taught, something to be poured out not once, not seven times, but 70 times seven? With some of the church members in Charleston, their beliefs allowed them to automatically forgive. But to many others, the forgiveness was a long, slow, arduous process. Unfortunately, tragedy doesn't always bring people closer. Earthquakes leave nothing but rubble. Fires leave nothing but ashes. So perhaps it was too soon to talk about forgiveness and healing when those wounds were being torn open every day. Before dying in a Nazi concentration camp, the German priest, Dr. Bonhoeffer, talked about the tendency among Christians to toss around the ideas of forgiveness as if it were free and easy. Cheap grace, he called it. But there is no cheap grace or cheap forgiveness. Some things that are broken just can't be fixed. We can't talk for any length about forgiveness of time about forgiveness in Charleston before its past comes into play. And its city's past, like many cities past, uh, has to do with uh, oppression of minorities. And as the song said on the uh, offertory about cowboys and Indians, the story of the Emmanuel Church is not that it was a predominantly black church, but it was the oldest alien church in the South, and prior to the Civil War had been a gathering point a place where a plan was hatched amongst slaves, allowing slaves to gain their freedom by seizing control of the city, then going to the free state of Haiti. But this never happened because the plan was a stubborn. The church burned to the ground, several slaves put to death, and new black churches were forbidden to be built. In fact, near the site where the old Emmanuel stood, a fortress was, was built 
it would later become what is now known as the Citadel. After events like this, that is like the slaves fought to gain freedom, the fear grew so much in the South that whites put an end to African-American schools. Teaching a slave to read became a crime. The idea that free African-Americans posed such a threat, which was part of the reason that Charlestonians fired the first shot on Fort Sumner, thus initiating the most devastating war in our history. So this is part of the background that we deal with. The rise of Emanuel Church again is in step with the city that is hopefully outgrowing its fears. The highlights that forgiveness is a very complicated phenomenon. You just can't get over it and move on. Sometimes the past has become a part of who you are. Forgive and forget is a formula that is totally skewed in favor of the offender. Who wouldn't want to be given a free pass for our past misconduct? So the search for forgiveness is one of many, many miles. While forgiving is more of a state of consciousness than an action, it's not adequate. It should lead to a different agenda of equalizing rights, trying to create more jobs, better education, equal justice, better health care. Removing a flag and the monument or the monument is a step in the process. We live into forgiveness. It's one of the things that we can choose. To quote Victor Franklin, the last of human freedoms, which is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. When I forgive someone, I'm done with that offense. I'm not controlled by that person or those actions. I'm released to do, to have my own reaction. And what any of this has to do with, with reconciliation, when individuals, groups have been enslaved or degraded or degraded for centuries, the reckoning becomes part of the cultural heritage. Forgiveness is not surrender or acquiescence. It does allow us to move on and to not be trapped by what has happened to us. There's a common question. How can you forgive if you're not ready to let that offender back into your life? So it's important not to confuse forgiveness with reconciliation. You can forgive someone, but never let them back into your life. That's not required. Reconciling, like healing, is an ongoing process. It's not limited to forgiveness, but it could include forgiveness. Reconciling requires each of us to be proactive, conscious, vulnerable, apologizing for our part in things, receiving apologies graciously, accepting and giving forgiveness, making and accepting amends. Reconciling, like healing, means that we have had a rift or something wrong. It means we have struggled and had ongoing struggles. It involves rebuilding trust, the broken in the present, and the distrust that has been entrenched over the years. Our work, my work, 
my responsibility, a way I can do something with the privileges I've been afforded, is be a person who puts windows into doors, holes in walls, gates and fences, willing to move one stone at a time, helping by doing it myself as well as encouraging others to do it. It's difficult being part of a culture that has been the majority culture because what we are required to do or encouraged to do is to share our power, to share our privilege, to pay attention to the stories. And this is particularly difficult because there are no easy solutions or resolutions, no cheap answers. Our history can be a burden or a blessing depending on what we learn from it and what we carry with ourselves. Our religious community is a human community. It involves the best of us as well as our shortcomings. We live our lives coming into and falling out of right relationship with ourselves, with each other, and that which transcends our lives. So we are here to seek forgiveness, reconciliation, to keep the circle unbroken. We are challenged and summoned to use our gifts to bless the world. Thank you.